0: Do you regret missing Cowan's Big Rig Bootcamp in 2021? Then Trial Guides is here to save the day. Starting today, Michael Cowan is officially a part of the Trial Guides family, and you can now purchase his on demand CLE through Trial Guides. Visit trialguides.com, click on the Shop tab, and select CLE to enjoy this professionally taped seminar at your convenience. And see for yourself why Cowan's Big Rig Bootcamp continues to grow year after year. And if you haven't RSVP'd for our seminar in 2022, visit BigRigBootCamp.com and secure your spot for our June 17th, 2022 CLE, the last free Big Rig Bootcamp. And now, enjoy the show.
1: This is Michael Cowan and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation.
0: You are the leader in the courtroom and you want the jury to be looking to you for the answers. When you figure out your theory, Never deviate. You want the facts to be consistent, complete, and credible. The defense has no problem running out the clock. Delay is the friend of the defense.
1: It's tough to grow a firm by trying to hold on and micromanage. You've got to front load a simple structure for jurors to be able to hold on to.
2: What types of creative things can we do as lawyers, even though we don't have a trial setting? Whatever you've got to do to make it real, you've got to do to make it real. But the person who
1: needs convincing is you.
0: Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan.
1: Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, for episode 99 I have my partner, Sonia Rodriguez. How are you doing today, Sonia?
2: Great, Michael. Congratulations on episode 99.
1: Almost with a big 100. It's kind of cool. That's awesome. I can't believe we're already right. on our the fifth season. But we're going to talk today about an important uh, topic, and that is, what are some things we can reasonably do to keep our clients happy? So, Sonia, why do we want to keep our clients happy?
2: Well... I always like to keep clients happy because since I was in kindergarten, I liked having all the gold stars next to my name. And so completely selfishly, it is fabulous to keep clients happy because, um, you know, it makes me feel good about the job I'm doing for them. And, you know, if you practice long enough and you have enough happy clients, you will see that. A happy client turns into future referrals in the in, um, cases and clients in the future. Absolutely. But it's also, statistically speaking, if you have a happy client, you're much less likely to get a grievance or a malpractice suit against you.
1: Yeah, to me, that's a good side effect. But it's really, you know, to me, one, word are in a service industry. We're supposed to be serving our clients. So, you know, we'd, we'd like to keep them happy. But, you know, there, to me, there's other things. One is, you know, at the end of the day, you want our clients to take our advice, whether or not to take a settlement offer, whether to proceed to trial. You have to have a level of trust and confidence uh, for them to take that advice. And you don't get that, you know, in, a, in, in one phone call. You have to build that up. And if they're mad at you or they think you're not doing a good job, then you know, you don't have that. And then that's when they're always, you know, talking to the cousin, talking to the brother-in-law that thinks that their case is worth so much more or gets scared, doesn't think you're gonna do a good job and settles for not enough money because they don't think you're gonna gonna be able to handle it at trial. Uh, Both those are things we wanna avoid. And so I think that's gonna be really important. The other thing is, you know, ratings, Google ratings are more and more important, even on a referral. Um, I went to go meet with uh, a client, a mutual client of ours, actually down in, I'm, I'm mutual client. it's a case you and I are working on together. I went, I went and drove down to the Rio Grande Valley. I was in the client's living room to do the initial meeting. And, uh, you know, the referring lawyer had told the client about us before, but they actually went and they Googled us and they looked at our ratings and they looked at our, you know, reviews and read all that stuff before deciding whether to say yes or no to us coming on the case. And so to the extent you can get clients that are happy enough to say good things about you and avoid getting clients that are unhappy enough to go say bad things about you online, it really makes a difference. And then finally, you know, you always hope that you have clients uh, either come back if they need a lawyer again or refer people, other people they know that need a lawyer again and keep them happy is a, is a good way to do that.
2: Yeah, I agree. There's, there's lots of reasons why we want to keep our clients happy. And I think it, the way you touched on it, um, developing that trust is critical because um, when you have a client who trusts you, um, you can go forward with your case strategy as a team.
1: And I think the trust is really important in in the personal injury sphere specifically. Because, you know, if you're, let's say you're doing insurance defense litigation. Now, you know, your client may never be happy with you because they just don't want to ever spend any money. But an insurance adjuster has a pretty good idea of what a budget should be in a case, an insurance adjuster has a pretty good idea of what they want to pay in a case or not. And so they have some way to measure whether they think you're doing a good job or not. They have some metrics. Our clients have no clue what their case is worth, typically. They definitely have no clue what a pleading is supposed to be look like, how artfully we did a deposition or responded to a motion. They, they have no way to measure or value us against any other lawyer. And so, you know, they can only value what they know and, you know, what they can compare to is how was I treated at this lawyer's office as compared to how am I treated in other interactions I have the rest of my life, the doctor's office, the grocery store, you know, whoever else I deal with, CPA, maybe, or tax preparer. I
2: I think the other brutal reality, Michael, is that, you know, like it or not, lawyers have a fairly low reputation among the public. And so our clients are coming to us with that kind of in the back of their mind. You know, are we those shady lawyers that they have heard about or read about in the paper? And so um, it's, it's really critical to, to building that trust to be upfront with them and honest with them, keeping them happy, be as transparent as possible, um, because I think, like it or not, Always in the back of their minds, they're wondering, you know, just how honest and truth, truthful are we being and trustworthy are we?
1: Yeah. And I found when you take the time to listen to clients and to, and to prove over time you're trustworthy, that you are trustworthy, you're able to work through some tough situations that may have gotten you fired or, or grievanced or, or just had an unpleasant experience otherwise. Uh, you know, especially when you have, let's say, multiple clients and only so much insurance to go around. Uh, You know, the fact that everyone trusts you helps you kind of, you know, now you can't tell them, at least in Texas, you can't tell them what each one should get, uh, but it kind of helps you work through those issues uh, ethically and also keeping them as happy as as can be. I want to take a step and kind of look at the question from the other direction. So before we we talk about what we can do to make clients happy, what are the things that you think make clients unhappy with their lawyer?
2: Well, you know, what I've found is um, the client is already initially unhappy when they don't know how you're getting paid, how we as the lawyer are getting paid. And if there's any doubt or confusion in their mind about what their lawyer is going to be getting out of their total recovery, um, I think that's always starting out in the wrong foot. So I like to have very frank, honest, transparent conversations, just matter of factly, about the contingency fee arrangement, how it is that the firm will get paid and how lucky they are um, to be in a country where um, they can hire a lawyer uh, through a contingency fee that ensures that when the more money they get, the more money the lawyer gets. So there's a built-in incentive for the lawyer to work as hard as possible on their case. And, um, you know, always being real clear and upfront that the attorney's, Case expenses are separate from the fee. Um, And the more I found, the more that I repeat that and make it a nonchalant kind of conversation, um, it builds a lot of trust and and they're less uneasy uh, about what's happening in their case when they know that up front.
1: Absolutely. That is so important. I think, But to be able to do that, we have to fix our own relationships with money and getting paid and having value. Uh, cause I think a lot of it is you know the I used to you help you helped me with this. I used to cut my fees all the time without the client even asking me to cut my fees. I think looking back now, sometimes the client being like, "Where did this come from? Um, and it wasn't even needed because uh, when we stopped doing it so much, I'm not saying we never cut our fees, but when we stopped doing it so much, the clients were no less happy. It was all in my head, my own guilt about making money my own, my lack of truly internalizing belief in my value, uh, in the value of what I provide. Uh, And, you know, so I think until we fix our own heads, it's hard to have those conversations.
2: I think that's true. I think one thing that's all I've always been mindful about, and one of the reasons why it's just like a non-starter for me when a talk begins about cutting an attorney's fee is, you know, the attorney's fee is not going all into the attorney's pocket. And there's a universe where if you walk in knowing that paralegals are being paid, investigators are being paid, health insurance is being paid for for the staff. And so um, it's never been anything that um, I've ever had a hang up about. And because of that, I think I, you know, have always had conversations with clients about it, just kind of frankly. And, um, you know, of course, there are lawyers all across you know, the practice field have different contingency fees. And I will tell you, it's a hell of a lot easier to have a conversation with a client when the contingency fee is reasonable and customary and something that we're all used to seeing. It's a lot harder to have that conversation when the contingency fee is is a little higher than usual.
1: It is. And I used to really struggle with that. And then I realized, uh, I think one time, you know, a client that said, well, isn't that a high fee? And you said, Yes, because um, it wasn't our contract, it was someone else's contract who brought us on a case. And you said, "Yes, why did you sign it?" <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah.
2: We weren't part
1: of that deal. I mean, we weren't anywhere there. You didn't ask us. I mean, if you'd come to us, we, you know, frankly, would have signed it up on a different fee, but you didn't come to us. You went to someone else. They presented you something, you chose to sign it, you know. And it took me a long time. It's like just kicked by the butt and say, "Hey dummy, what's wrong with getting with asking someone to pay what they promised in writing to pay you?" it uh, will agreed agree to it. It's not, no one's bringing it up. It's a problem. Why, why are you doing this to yourself? And you know, yeah. it just was all, again, for me, it was about just getting my own sense of worth and value right in my head.
2: And once you've had that conversation and you have it periodically with the client, I like to bring up the fee and the separation between the fee and the case expenses. Uh, when I meet the client the first time, when we have a really in-depth conversation in advance of their deposition we do it again obviously in a mediation but the more conversations we can have about the fees and the expenses what they are how they are you know conceived like where you know what the totals are it makes it a lot easier at the end of the case when you're um having to write checks and you don't feel guilty about writing a check because the client seen it coming all along
1: absolutely Let's talk about some of the other things that make clients unhappy and then what the, the solutions that we found uh, for them so that we can keep them happy. Uh, you know, I think one thing that really makes people unhappy, and if you look at the grievances and uh, complaints against lawyers, you know, I think the biggest one is, is lack of communication. Uh, you know, you see the biggest, you know, the lawyer won't return my calls, but then we get really busy. It's hard to return every, every phone call, you know, on a timely basis. So how have we, uh, what are some of the solutions that we've come up with to try to keep the clients well-informed so hopefully they don't even have to call us?
2: Well, I've always had an internal kind of promise to myself that I'll return calls within 24 hours. So that's my own thing. But I have to really applaud you in creating a formal written policy and a practice of contacting the client, affirmatively reaching out to the client um, every 30 days. And documenting that communication and not only documenting just a generic communication with the client, but making sure that you have a template of at least three or four questions that you ask every single time that you talk to the client, one of which involves updating the client on the status of their case. So I think that when clients don't know what's going on in their case and they're hearing radio silence um, about something as personal and intimate as their own bodily injury. Claim um, it does create some anxiety and some anger and, and agitation on the part of the client. So affirmatively calling the client every 30 days really alleviates a lot of that.
1: Yeah. And what I've found is we don't get as many calls asking what's going on in the case because they know what's going on in the case. Now, it's not that we, and And if you ever look at one of our files, we're talking to the client more than, especially when they're actively treating. You know, we try to get somebody, not the lawyer, but someone to call after Dr you know, major doctor, not every chiropractor visit, but major doctor's appointment, you know, how did it go? What did the doctor tell you? Do you have a follow-up? That way we can remind them of their follow-up appointment, you know, just to try to help them remember to get the treatment that's been recommended for them. Uh, But we also, you know, ask uh, specific questions. So at least once a month, and it doesn't have to be a lawyer doing it, but someone with knowledge, uh, typically for us, it's the paralegal unless the lawyer chooses to do it. And so No, just because we always get people asking, like, well, what do you ask them? You know, the required questions are, you know, how are you doing? And and that conversation needs to include what physical symptoms are still wrong with you from your injury. When did you last see a doctor? Go over the list of medical providers we know of to make sure that we haven't forgotten about anybody or there's no one new or there's no one uh, that's not there. You know, ask them, you know, if they needed any assistance in setting up future doctor's appointments just to make sure they get the treatment that they need you know, tell the client what's going on in the case and remind them of any upcoming dates, including if we're going to do a deposition prep session, their deposition, and mediation trial, or anything else that needs to be done. And then, you know, when we have our monthly file reviews, we also can give assignments, be sure you talk to the client about X, Y, or Z. And just having that done on a regular basis, it really does uh, keep the clients happy. It also helps keep the case moving because, you know, we 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 don't get to the point where we're getting close to trying to resolve the case and we just find out there's a medical provider we didn't know about. Now we gotta stop and get those records. Are you know, clients ought to doctors ought to just make appointments for clients and clients ought to just go to them. But unfortunately the reality is sometimes, you know, there's a miscommunication. The client thinks that for some reason the lawyer would be setting all that up and so explain to them, No, here's you know, if you need help, we can help you, but you know, it's better for you just to call the doctor yourself and just make sure you're you know you've got if you got a you know, a referral to a different type of physician, make sure you follow up with it. You know, we're not directing the medical care, but we're also trying to remind them the importance of following their doctor's orders.
2: That's the scary part that it doesn't, um, it doesn't occur to the client naturally that it's odd that no one has called them to follow up, you know, for physical therapy for weeks. You know, my mom had a knee surgery and six weeks went by and I asked her, I was like, You have you have you been going to your physical therapy? And she was like, No, they never called to set it up for me. And I was like, Mom, you've got to call and if you haven't heard from them, you've got to call and set it up. So the lay person isn't gonna appreciate that a gap in treatment has any adverse effect on their case. So it's incumbent on us as attorneys who do know better, um, you know, to stay in contact with our clients regularly to catch whether there are gaps in treatment and intervene so that there aren't. So I mean I really like um, the template that we use for our um, client contacts. The only thing that I think is uh, could, could be improved on is, you know, how's the client doing? Sometimes the client just says fine.
1: Well, that's, that, that's an internal training issue. Then it, it, it needs to be a fine That's why it says, including asking, well, I'm glad you're doing fine. Are you still feeling anything from the crash? Are you having any injuries or, you know, so that's, that's an internal training issue. We need to make sure people know to do that.
2: But it's, it's, Absolutely critical in keeping a happy client because they know that they're going to hear from our team every thirty days or so, and that you know sometimes more often than that, and um, that they're going to be apprised of what's going on in the case.
1: Yeah, and like uh, like we said, just the fact that uh, that they get those, they just don't call us as much. Whereas it used to be when we didn't have that, you know, time would go by, no one talked to the client, and then when by the time they're called, it's like I don't know what's going on in my case, no one's talked to me. You know, it's just it just creates unneeded stress.
2: Well, you know, I have had a lot of lawyer friends who know that we do um, this practice of reaching out to our client every 30 days to give them status. And some people will say, well, what if I'm not doing anything on my client's case every 30 days? I mean, what if nothing's happening on their case every 30 days or between 30 day periods? The reality is there's always something going on on a client's case. We're either ordering medical records. It may not be taking a depo in your in that client's case every month, but we're ordering medical records. We're scheduling for things to take place in the, in the future. We're hiring experts. We're investigating, you know, the crash. I mean, there's lots of stuff that goes on that um, may not seem like we're, working on the case, but we're always doing something on the case. And so keeping the client apprised of the fact that we're ordering your medical records or we're having a problem ordering these MRI films from this facility, it helps the client know that um, they're a priority to you. And that's going to make them happy.
1: Absolutely. The other thing I like it does for as a law firm owner is it keeps my teams wanting to do it between having to do a monthly fire review and having to do a, a monthly meeting with me and a monthly client call to the client. Yes, that takes time away from working on cases, but it also means that you're going to be doing something every month and you're not going to let months go by. And even there are situations where, okay, look, we have cases where in federal court, the discovery period is over. Uh, All the motions have been filed and we are waiting for the court to assign us a trial date. Just telling the client, hey, we're still waiting for the court to assign us a trial date. We'll let you know just so they're not wondering is still important.
0: Each year the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to delisi at cowanlaw.com. That's d-e-l-i-s-i CowanLaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show.
2: What else do you think is uh, one of the things that clients get upset about?
1: Well, when the elements know it's so much they get upset about it, it's just some people have a feeling and again, it goes to the bad reputation that lawyers have in society that we just we don't care about them we only care about the money and and that they are just a means to us getting paid we don't care about them as people and so there's things that we can do to try to change that uh, a little bit I mean you know, there's always going to be some suspicion and that's okay that's just reality let's not let's not create this fantasy world where all our clients are happy twenty four seven and never ha- doubt us in any way shape or form because these are just ways to improve things they're not guarantees of of eternal bliss but one thing that we do is let's say we have a client get a surgery we send the client flowers and then we make darn sure we do not charge the flowers as a case expense uh, that that will undo all the goodwill you did there but just the little sending flowers after a surgery or on the anniversary or sending you know a call or a text not just on the birthday but on a death case you know maybe checking in on the anniversary of death hey i know this is probably a hard day for you just wanted to let you know we're here for you if you need anything uh, you know, is important. I found, and you know, I can't do this unfortunately on every case, but I do this on you know at least the cases that I'm going to go to trial and all the major cases. Uh, and that's going to the client's house and meeting with them in their world. Uh, you get to know them better. Uh, I mean, you see the pictures on the wall, you see how they interact with the people in their home. They're more comfortable because it's their territory. But I found just the fact that I'm I'm going to go there. I don't see myself as above them that I have to go meet in some fancy conference room. But I'm perfectly happy and comfortable going to their house and, and being normal with them, uh, I have found makes us closer.
2: I think you made a good point about not putting ourselves as attorneys in the position of thinking we can make clients happy. I mean, the reality is that there, there's a lot of complexity to a personal injury claim. Psychologically, physically, you know, chronic pain causes anxiety and depression. And so there, you're not there, there's going to be situations where you're not ever going to have a, quote, happy client. And our, we're setting ourselves up to fail if we're, you know, wanting a happy client. But what I do think is important is setting uh, parameters for what we can do and what we can't do. And so I always tell my clients up front. I feel like um, Robin Williams in um, as the genie in Aladdin. You know, I can't bring somebody back from the dead. I can't, you know, make somebody fall in love with you. Like the ju- I can't make the jury fall in love with you. I can't make somebody come back from the dead. But what can I do? And part of that conversation is letting the clients know I'm not going to be able to bring your health back. I cannot fix your pain. Um, I can learn your story. I can tell your story if you will let me. But setting these parameters about what I will not be able to do has always been kind of clearing the air of uh, of expectations, unreasonable expectations.
1: Yeah, I think and learning to realize you when know, when people are in pain, they're in stress. They need to vent sometimes. And you know, sometimes I've had client calls. They start off hostile, and you figure out it's because they're venting, and you just, you let them vent, and then it's okay. But if you start arguing with them or telling them why they're wrong, well, then it's not going to be okay. And so I think the learning in clients as in marriage, the learning when someone just needs to vent and you don't need to do anything but listen and nod along and show that you're listening is important.
2: Right. And we've all had situations where the client will yell and throw a tantrum and scream at the paralegal and then the lawyer calls and follows up, follows up and the client's perfectly fine by then. But I think, you you know, at that point, they've already vented.
1: Yeah are that they just some people are a holes and feel like they can be rude and disrespectful to paralegals, but then they wouldn't do that to a lawyer, which I don't like.
2: Uh,
1: no. It's not acceptable. And, and we do have to, you know, draw lines and protect our people too. And you know I've had to tell clients, you know, hey, that's not acceptable. Uh, nicely, yeah. but but withdraw those boundaries. And again, it's just setting expectations. Like yes. we're here we're here to help you. If you have a problem, <laughs> we're here to listen, but you know, we're not here to be insulted or yelled at, especially not my people. So one other issue I think is important is managing expectations. Uh, and this is where I've seen a problem, you know, we get brought in on cases and someone wants to sign the case up. So they tell the client what a great case they have, what a big case they have. They don't share any of the bad news. And so when you, when you start talking, and then they want like the mediator to fix it for them and get the client, you know, to take reasonable money uh, when they never, because they didn't want to ever talk about the hard things to talk about, but I think you know, managing expectations and sometimes it means, look, you have a really good case, but we are, we're going to have to hold out. They're not going to offer what's fair. We're going to go to mediation, they're not going to offer you what's fair. Know now that there's a 95% chance that we're going to walk out of this mediation without settling because we're just testing you and we're going there to, to see if you can pass the test of saying no and holding out for more money. Um, sometimes if you've got some real problems with their case, they're going to bring these things up and they have a good point. You know, if we don't have good answers for these, you know, and we can put some money in your pocket, you need to think about taking it. And that, you know, when you have those conversations early to let people, because you have to let them digest it, let them sleep on it, come back with their counter arguments, you know, discuss them with you why you still think there's risk. Uh, and then let them make the best decision. They're more likely to take your advice and, and not to be mad and blaming you for it. Cause you know, some people want to blame you for the fact that, You know, their son was drunk and not wearing a seatbelt going 80 miles an hour in a 55 when he got in the crash.
2: I, I agree. I think one of the things that I've learned to do in those circumstances is I remind myself that I don't have a crystal ball. I may have been practicing law for 22 years. I may know this jurisdiction and venue really well, but I don't have a crystal ball. So I never tell a client what their case is worth or what their case isn't worth. But what I do have a conversation with them about very early on is what I imagine the insurance company wants to pay them. And so when they've not gotten treatment for the first 30 days of a crash and they've got a two month gap in care, you know, over the last year and, you know, they've abandoned the medical treatment recommended by the doctor. You can look at the medical records and then you can tell the client, this is what I think an insurance company will pay you for this claim. And they will be mad. <laughs> they will be upset, but I'm telling them what I think an insurance company will offer them. Um, and it kind of diffuses the, the, the rift between me and the client, because my job as I see it is to maximize the value of their claim. Um, but the insurance company is on the other side of our team effort and the insurance company is valuing their case X way. You know what I mean? So I think it helps to kind of uh, make sure that as lawyers, we're not telling them what their case is worth or what their case isn't worth because really we won't know until a jury decides, but letting them see the insurance company as the bad guys that the insurance companies are undervaluing claims.
1: Absolutely. And then we can just tell them, look, if you don't like what they're willing to pay you, then we can take a chance. And here's my recommendations and my thoughts on that. And and I think one thing that's really important, and it's easier to do at our, at our age, Sonia. Uh, you're still younger than me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's easier for us to do, I think, than it, it was for us 20-something years ago. Uh, and that is you can never, if the client thinks you need the money, they're going to be doubting like are you just trying to sell me out cheap because you need the money now and so you know one thing i you know i tell clients you know like i love like i love try your case i love trying cases it's fun for me uh i have i mean i have a blast it's what i when, wh- why i do this kind of work because it's a lot of fun but it's not so fun for you and here's why it's fun for me because let's say you know you and i we go and we try the case and it goes wrong and we lose. What happens to you? That's your case. That's your only case. You lose whatever they offer to you is gone. You've lost that money. You've lost the opportunity to have that money. Now you've got to figure out how you're going to get through the rest of your life. What's going to happen to me? I want to lose a little bit of money. It's not going to make a bit of difference in my life, my daily life, because I've got enough. What I'm going to do is I want to feel really bad. You know, I may tear up a little bit. I probably won't, but I might, I'm going to go home I'm going to open a bottle of wine. I'm going to say goodbye to your case and toast it and mourn for one night, and the next day, I'm going to go settle another case, and I'll be right back in the game. It will not make a major effect on my life. And so that's why it's so important that you make these decisions, because you have all the risk. You know, I've, I've won more cases than most lawyers. I know I've also lost more cases than more lawyers I know because I've tried a ton more cases than most of the lawyers out there. And so, you know, I'll survive no matter what. You'll still survive. But the question is, you know, this is your opportunity. So you got to figure out what you want to do. Uh, and when you just turn around like that, it just really they take your advice a lot more.
2: Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's such a nuanced conversation to have with a client when you're as an attorney, you've got financial you know risk in the game. I mean, you've invested a lot of money in a case. I think it's difficult, like you were saying, you know, for younger lawyers who who have a lot of money in a case, there is a level of desperation that you feel when a client doesn't take your advice. They um, feel like they're, you know, they're making the wrong decision. But ultimately, you know, if you remember that it's the client's case and you've agreed to represent them and take the case to trial if necessary. And when the client feels that level of trust and loyalty to the contract, then they are going to be much happier than if you're if you're pressuring them to do something that they feel in their hearts they
1: don't want to do. Absolutely, and part of it is just the having the uh, the life experiences that we develop up. And it's just harder as a younger lawyer to have that attitude of you know I don't care what's, what's your case, you whatever you want to do, and 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 really and truly being okay with what even if they're I guess annoying to have someone not take your advice and have to go try a case when you think it's a bad idea. But you you just get get around and do it. And part of it is you know really as you make money in this profession, don't spend it all. You know, put it away, get good credit, have good lines of credit. You need to get where you can afford to lose any case on your docket without having a major change in your life. That's hard. Uh, it may mean, you know, partnering with people to help finance you on, on the way up. that's, you know, or unless you can develop good lines of credit and stuff like that as you go. And I think part of it is just having the experience uh, of losing something where you had over 100,000 in it and which sucks i'm not saying i'm looking forward to ever doing that again um although statistically it's likely to happen in the the game we we play that you know we win most of them at trial but we don't win all of them Uh, and yes that hurts but when you survive it it's a very liberating thing because you just realize okay the worst happened this is a case that i spent way too much money on it hurts to lose it but i survived i made it back i'm okay i'm still doing well um, and I think there's just something to going through that that lets you lose, help lose your fear of losing.
2: And I think that the client uh, can sense that. And it's, it's liberating for them to not worry about whether their lawyer is trying to convince them to do something that they don't want to do. Exactly. They're much happier when you put it on the table and say, here's the pros, here's the cons, here's the financial risks, yeah. here's the financial pros and cons. This is how much it's going to cost me to actually get through a trial in your case versus how much I've invested in your case right now. And then leave it for the client to decide. And that's also been super liberating for me because at that point, it's the client's decision. I don't have to lose sleep over whether or not, you know, to take the offer on the table at mediation or whether this is a good, you know, good offer. It's the client's decision ultimately.
1: And what I found is, you know, even on the mediations that don't settle, which unfortunately on the big big cases is quite a few of them, uh, you know, our clients are increasingly, although disappointed because they all would like to get their case settled for the money that they'd like to get. But when we warn them in advance and then we're there for them and they see us not freaking out and being desperate for money, they're happy with us and the representation they got. And That's the most we can ask for. So we talked a little bit about getting, uh, about reviews. What do you think, what do you find the best time to ask a client for a review is?
2: Well, the best time to get a, a happy client um, to give you a great review is when you hand them that settlement check at the end of the case.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The, there's that magic window between the time they get the money and the time they spend it on.
2: <laughs> or they've had time to reflect on it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But uh, I totally agree. You know, if, if, if you have a client that's happy, you know, and you have to ask. Don't just assume they're going to give you reviews. You have to ask for reviews. You need to make it easy for them. You need to get send them the links, explain to them how to do it. You know, I think you can't just have them all do it in your office because the uh, the programs have algorithms that are looking for the IP address of where the reviews coming from. So they're all coming from your office. They're going to stop counting them. But you know, if you get them to do it on their phones, where they're you know they're not on your Wi-Fi, so it's not your IP address. Right then and there, it, you know, if you can, it's so much better. Uh, and, you know, doing things, I think we're going to do a contest with our paralegals and uh, offer prizes, you know, for every uh, five-star review they get or something to encourage them to do it at that point.
2: I think, it, I mean, I think that's a good strategy. The reality is we have lots of happy clients. Um, the hard part is just kind of corralling them into doing, uh, taking the time out of their day to do the review and you know, log in and do all of that stuff. So well, that takes work.
1: Yep. Sonia, you know, there's one other area that is a particular challenge uh, in trying to keep clients at least happy with us, if not happy with everything. And that is, we sometimes have to be the bearers of bad news. We get a ruling we didn't like. Uh, we have discover things in the investigation uh, that markedly diminish the case's value. What are some ways you can handle? Delivering bad news in a way that minimizes the the harm to the client-lawyer relationship.
2: Well, I've found that it's always important if you can have those client conversations in person. Um, you know, it's unfortunate during COVID that we can't have as many in-person conversations as we you know used to have. But if you're going to deliver bad news, I think it should be in person. I think you should not have your phone on you or watch on your wrist, you're going to be completely 100% focused on that conversation with no distractions. And then just be as brutally honest about whatever the bad news is that you can be and try not to use big complicated words and just be as simple and upfront about the bad news as possible. Um, I also think it's critically important not to wait. As soon as you know that you have bad news, you should deliver it um, because Clients immediately can put together in their minds a timeline of when the bad happened or when you learned of the bad news, and and it builds resentment and anger and distrust when there's a delay in that um, conversation.
1: Yeah, the only thing I'd add to that is just the if you know that something's coming up that may lead to bad news. I so see there's a motion for summary judgment that got filed, and and you've got a case that may it may get granted in, uh, or you know there is. Something else that may happen or something else might go wrong. Uh, I think letting your client know up front, hey, this motion got filed. This is what happens if it gets granted. I'm a little worried about it. Uh, this is what we're going to do to try to fight it. But it's you know the judge could go either way and we'll let you know as soon as we find out. Or even sometimes like, hey, I, I don't think we're going to win this one. Uh, and then, but, we're, but I'm going to do my best and we'll see what happens. And letting them know so it doesn't just come as a surprise out of the blue to them.
2: Right. I had a deposition last week and um, my client refused to answer a, a pretty intimate question that a defense lawyer asked her. And, um, you know, I thought there was a 50 50 chance that the judge might compel her um, to answer that question. So we went off the record and I told her, I said, look, under the rules, you know, you can't not answer the question unless I'm instructing you not to answer. I mean, you got to answer the question, but if you are going to refuse to answer this question, you need to know there's a 50, 50 chance that a judge might make us come all the way back to this deposition, sit here again, get the court reporter again. You'll have to pay for the deposition probably. Um And she told me, I don't care. I am not answering that question. And so once she knew, you know, worst case scenarios, you know, And I had her back and said, okay, I'm not going to force you to answer the question. You don't even have to tell me why, you know, you don't even have to tell me the answer to the question. But, um, you know, she knows if, and when the defense counsel files a motion to compel that answer and issues a sanction and orders my client to pay for that deposition in the court reporter again, she knows it's coming. It's not going to be pleasant news, but it's, she
1: knows it's coming. Now, in fairness, I think I think you have more than a 50% chance of winning that. Uh, I, yeah. I, I think the question was out of bounds and abuse of the discovery process and that you were right uh, in instructing not to answer. But sometimes, you know, they need to see that you have their back, even if that means. Now, I'm not saying you ignore the rule. Like if they asked her, like, you know, how did the crash happen or how has the crash affected you? Obviously, you can't or had you had a wreck in the past or prior injury and it was relevant and discoverable. Let's say she'd had another wreck a year before and hurt the same part of your body. Now, we can't tell them not to answer that just because they don't want to, but right. the situation where you had it was something that was personal and it had nothing to do with the case. And so I think you had every every right. I would have done exactly what you did was, was instruct her not to answer, but also tell her, I, I can do this, I but it's 50-50, a judge can go either way. This this is what could happen if it goes against us. And uh, But I, I totally support what you did, but I think it made you closer to the client too.
2: But I will tell you when, And if we get an adverse ruling on that one question and I have to tell her that she's got to give a deposition again, um, she's not going to be happy. That's going to be bad news. But she's going to take it a hell of a lot easier um, because she knows it was a possibility.
1: Yeah. And it was her choice.
2: And it was her choice.
1: Absolutely. I think that's the biggest thing. Is just the overall, you know, clients, like I said, they have no idea whether we're doing a good job as an attorney or not because they have no basis for comparison most of the time. Uh, Every once in a while, you have a client, even if you have clients that have multiple attorneys, they don't really know, you know, how your quality of your legal work is and even the quality of the result you got. What they do know is how they were treated and how the experience is. So I think we all should work with not just personally, but with the people in our offices to try to make people feel valued and respected. I, I learned a lot about this too from my, my partner in our New Mexico operation, Alex Begum, and, you know, they. He's to me like, you know, a lot of our clients are not people that are given a lot of respect in life. They're not high wage earners. No one's kissing their butt. They're not supervisors. They go to the doctor's office and they sit there waiting for three hours to see the doctor in a room full of, you know, magazines. No one wants to read that are three months. I mean, three years old. You know, they go everywhere else and they're like, kind of like herded and treated like cattle. And so, you know, if when as soon as they get in, they're warmly greeted. They're offered something to drink. We don't make them wait forever. If they do have to have a little bit of weight, we go out there and explain to them, hey, I'm just finishing this up. I'll be with you right away. Anything you'd like to drink? You know, we have Wi-Fi for them uh, to, to help keep them there. We give a little gift basket uh, package, you know, wrapped with a nice pretty gold bowl when someone, when we get a new client and we overnight it to them. So they see it's got like a little video book talking about what the, what's going to happen in their case. It's got like a notebook for them to like, write things down about their case. It's just got lots of different things in there for them. Uh, iPhone phone charger, one uh, well, like the portable phone charger, all kinds of stuff. Uh, but just because other people don't do that to them in life. So just little things that make them feel special. Uh, and just, you know, what is your office like? What is the experience? How does it smell when you walk in the door? You know, are there papers cluttered everywhere to, or it looks like their papers are gonna be there? They, are they going there to a, a nice, pretty, well decorated, all those things make a difference, and uh, we we need to think about that because you make people feel better and more respected in your office and anywhere are dealing with your office than anywhere else in their lives. Then they're going to like you.
2: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Those are good. Those are good things to aim for.
1: Yep. Doesn't mean you, you're always perfect. Doesn't mean that no one will ever get upset. But you know, they maximize the chance of having happy clients that will tell other people how good you are, and you know.
2: Not every conversation goes the way we want them to go, but, you know, we can continue to try.
1: Yeah. And it is a lot better than it used to be. I mean, like I said, we're not getting people calling in and complaining all the time. We have, if anything, they're complaining that we call them too often.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that actually does happen.
1: <laughs> well, that's a good complaint to have. I mean, it really yeah, is. It is. Okay. Well, thank you all for joining us today on episode 99. We're going to do something special for episode 100. We have David Ball. Uh, he's got a new book out that David and Artemis uh, have written with Nick and Courtney Rowley. Uh, I'm excited to have David back on. I always learn so much from him and to learn all the new stuff that's coming out in this new book that's coming out. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lord Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lord Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive plaintiff lawyer only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation.
0: Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to delisi at CowanLaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I at CowanLaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.